Daniel Ortega and Donald Trump are actually very similar. They want what's best for themselves and their family, and they're willing to destroy their countries to be able to achieve that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Robert Schwartz, executive director of Primary Power, a nonprofit, and co-founder of Primary Pivot, a super PAC. Robert brought a really interesting perspective to the podcast. As a foreign policy professional who had worked for many years in countries that have lost their democracies, Robert has taken a year off to try to stop Trump from taking the United States down the same authoritarian road. Through his organizations, he's working right now to get undeclared voters out for Haley instead of Trump in New Hampshire as a last ditch effort to stop Trump's nomination. It's another take on anti-Trump political entrepreneurship and Robert was a very good guest. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Robert Schwartz of Primary Pivot. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Robert, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Robert Schwartz. I am the executive director of a nonprofit called Primary Power, a co-founder of a super pet called Primary Pivot. I have worked in foreign policy for 20 years, most of the last decade on Venezuela and Nicaragua. So I've seen how democracies die in other countries, and I am most concerned about democracy potentially dying in our country. So taking a leave of absence for a year to focus on trying to work on the primaries and in the general election to do my part to try to help stop Trump. What was the founding story for the organizations that you just referenced? Why did you decide beyond what you already said, to start something? What was the mechanism for doing it? Who'd you go in with? What's the beginning look like? My good friend from my freshman year in college at Emory University, a guy named Ken Scheffler, who is the co-founder of Primary Pivot, he about sometime like in June of 2022, We've been good friends for a long time, and we've had this thing called Crazy Hour where we just kind of relax and talk about politics and all that stuff. So it wasn't during a crazy hour, but it it should have been. He started talking about how if the Democratic primary side would be non-competitive, 
that there would be this huge opportunity, tens of millions of voters that have nothing to do on the Democratic primary side. And wouldn't it be cool to get them to vote in the primary that matters? Yeah. So this was like a year and a half ago. And I was like, that's a cool idea, but what do you want me to do about it? I've got my day job. Leave me alone, basically. Like, it's an interesting thought. Since I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, I asked like my brother and some of his friends and some of my friends, these are all like left of center or Democrats. And I asked them to vote against a guy who went to my high school named Eric Greitens because he's a great future danger to this country. And so instead of voting in the Democratic primary in Missouri, a few of my Democratic friends voted for Eric Schmidt, somebody who they disagree with on every single issue, but they did it to stop Eric Greitens. And so I was like, wow, (laughs) liberals and Democrats will vote against somebody who is horrendous and somebody who's a threat. So it took a year for me to actually understand like, okay, if, if a few people can do it, why not try to get as many people as possible to do it? And the mechanism to do that was like, okay, I guess we have to create a super PAC. <laughs> and so we created a super PAC and then we created a nonprofit. Given that a lot of people who are either political entrepreneurs or would like to be listen to this, can you tell me a little bit about the nitty gritty of that? Who did you go to to create these organizations? How much effort was it? We had no idea what we were doing. I mean, I'm a political junkie, so I have heard of these different type of organizations, but we literally, I remember like looked up on the FEC website, like, should we become a super PAC? What kind of super PAC? And it was confusing. And then my friend, well, my co-founder, Ken, he printed out the form or whatever to become a super PAC. It took him like, I think probably like a half an hour to fill out the form. And then he submitted it. And like a few days later, we had like the, you know, whatever it was, the IRS code. And it's like, oh, we're an actual organization. I mean, he's created a couple businesses before. I have not. So it was like, wow, we're registered with the FEC now. And then as we started talking to more and more people, they were like, great that you have a super PAC because the beauty of a super PAC is you can basically be fully partisan with the super PAC. We can basically say to vote against Trump in the Republican primary with the super PAC. We were advised for a number of reasons to also create what's called a 501c4 nonprofit, but 51% or more of that nonprofit has to be focused on nonpartisan activity. So we created primary power because we also care about voter empowerment and getting more people to the polls. That's something that both organizations share. And the reason to create a 501c4 beyond like voter empowerment goals is large donors can donate to 501c4s and it doesn't have the same you know, FEC reporting requirements. And so there can be a little bit more. And that's turned out to be huge as well, because we have, uh, we got the support of family and friends. And then we've also attracted the interest of a couple of large donors now. I've never been an entrepreneur, but it's been fun kind of learning how to do it. Oh, 
And just the last point is to create a 501c4, you really need to hire a law firm. And so, yeah, we just reached out to a law firm and they uh, gave us an offer to be able to do it while we were still ramping up. And they said, if we got a lot of resources coming in, then they would charge us a lot more at that point. And so, so it was like, okay, there was no reason not to do it. Was it a specialized political law firm or group, or was it just a regular law firm? Just a regular law firm. Yeah. You said that you had some friends and family money, and then now some larger donors. What's the scale of the operation now? What will you have to spend? And are you still raising money? We're getting pretty close to the New Hampshire primary. (laughs) So yeah, the organization has been lucky enough. Most of our friends and family, I thought we were a little bit uh, crazy when we started this, but we had enough of them to support us. And we raised about $20,000 from about 50 friends and family. And then uh, just in the last kind of month, we were lucky enough to get a $600,000 donation to focus exclusively on New Hampshire. And then that was supplemented by a second donor with $50,000. So we're now up to uh, $670,000 and we plan to spend over 90% of it in New Hampshire as a part of the kind of proposal to get the $600,000. We proposed that we would do three rounds of mailers, five rounds of text messages, digital media, rides to the polls, things like that. With our three rounds of mailers and five rounds of text, we're going to reach over 140,000 New Hampshire voters, mostly focused on this category of undeclared voters that have voted in Democratic primaries, not Republican primaries, like Democratic primaries. So they're left of center voters, they're high propensity voters uh, that we know vote in primaries. And we're telling them, hey, this year, If you really want to stop Donald Trump, you have to vote in the Republican primary. That's the case we're making to them. I don't recall what the turnout is like in raw numbers in New Hampshire. Typically, what's the range? How many people matter to an outcome? Yeah, so (laughs) we got to dig in a lot to the New Hampshire numbers. There's typically between 250,000 and 300,000 voters in both the Democratic and the Republican primary. Like, so each side gets between 250 and 300,000. The Democratic primary in 2020, there were 300,000 voters. So it was relatively high turnout, but 130,000 of those 300,000 were were undeclared voters. So 44% of them are basically these independents that can vote in either primary. So given that the Democratic primary is kind of a mess and the DNC's called it meaningless and all of that stuff when there's an incumbent president who's going to be the nominee if he wants to be. We believe that along with our efforts and just the natural um, contours of the race, that there will be like a minimum of 275 to 300,000 people that vote in the Republican primary this year. The key number is that Trump in 2016, he got 100,000 votes. He got 130,000 votes, basically running unopposed against Bill Weld in in 2020. So his supporters are not going away, right? They're firm support. So he's going to get that 100 to 130,000 votes. 
in New Hampshire, no doubt. But if it's 250,000 votes, then he gets he gets 50% here in New Hampshire. If it's 300,000 votes, then you're talking about him getting into the mid-30s. And so we are absolutely focused on increasing that denominator as high as possible so that Trump's percentage is low and his opponent is level is as high as possible. Those are small numbers by comparison with elections elsewhere in bigger states. You look at election results, but when it comes down to it, actually changing substantially the number of people who vote in anything is much harder than it looks. What makes you think that you can change people's behavior substantially with what's relatively small sum of money in politics and a notion about strategic voting, which is a a well-known thing that people do, but not usually a huge numbers of people. Well, so we're encouraged by a few data points as to why we think this is actually possible. And we think that the data is on our side here. One is that there's a history, a tradition in New Hampshire of these undeclared voters which make up 40% of the New Hampshire electorate, by the way. So they're the biggest voting block in New Hampshire. A poll that, or a, a data point that I like to cite is that in 2004, when George W. Bush was running unopposed on the Republican side, 93% of undeclared voters voted in the Democratic primary that year. 93%. In 2012, when Barack Obama was running unopposed. 90% of undeclared voters voted on the Republican primary side that year. So people don't focus on that, but there was a huge shift depending on which primary was more competitive. So we believe, and we have all the historical data to support this, that 80 to 90% of undeclared voters will vote on the Republican primary side this year without us even being in the mix. The issue is how many of those voters stay home. So it's a question of will they vote in the Republican primary or will they stay home? And so then it becomes more like a get out the vote operation in in some some respects. The other quick data points I just want to go over is we did a national study of 1,500 voters and Democrats, and there were 9% of them said that they would be willing to vote in, like to cross over and vote in the Republican primary. So that's the control group. But if you treat them with an anti-Trump message that you can stop Trump by voting in the Republican primary, just a simple message, that number went from 9% to 18% that would be willing to vote in the Republican primary. So it doubled. So if you take what's already happening in New Hampshire and then you treat it with this unique circumstance this year of Democrats and independents just being so concerned about Trump and losing our democracy and that being the top issue, we're pretty confident that people are thinking about this particular race differently, particularly in New Hampshire. Not every state has an open primary where independents can vote with either major party. When you look forward from New Hampshire to the states that are coming up quickly for Trump, the South Carolinas of the world, are there other opportunities to do this? 
Yeah, the calendar is another reason why we're quite optimistic. Um, well, <laughs> when I say optimistic, I'm talking like that there's a 10 to 20% path here. Trump is almost definitely going to be the nominee, but there's a 10 or 20% chance that he won't. And we're trying to just work on that, you know, small possibility. But the the reason why we're optimistic is New Hampshire, for the reasons we've discussed, is an amazing opportunity. South Carolina was not a state that we thought was a very good state for this. Unlike New Hampshire, it's a totally open primary. In New Hampshire, only undeclareds can switch. In South Carolina, anyone can vote in the Republican primary. The reason we don't think it's a great state is Trump is extremely popular in South Carolina and its demographic profile. Like there's not a lot of highly educated voters. There's not a lot of suburban voters. There's not a lot of voters that we see as being traditional voters that might be interested in crossing over. The most important thing is South Carolina's winner take all. So even if Haley gets to within 10 10 to 5 points there, she still loses all of the delegates. And so it's her home state. So she, for optics reasons, she needs to keep it close. But the bigger opportunity is really Super Tuesday. And I'll tell you why Super Tuesday is so much of a big deal for us. Virginia is the best state on Super Tuesday. Marco Rubio only lost by 2.8 percentage points in 2016. So Virginia is a totally open primary with a lot of military, federal government workers, uh, educated people, suburban people. It's an incredible state. And I think uh, as a fellow Southern governor, Nikki Haley, I think she will win Virginia if she's still in the conversation. Massachusetts is like New Hampshire, a semi-open primary, and it's 61% independents, 30% Democrats, and 9% Republicans, and it's the most educated state in the nation. And so Massachusetts is on Super Tuesday. Colorado is on Super Tuesday, another semi-open primary. Minnesota is on Super Tuesday, another totally open primary. Maine, semi-open primary, Vermont, semi-open primary, all on Super Tuesday. So you could see in a scenario where Nikki Haley gets close or wins New Hampshire and survives South Carolina, where she could win Virginia, Massachusetts, Colorado, Minnesota, Vermont, Maine. And then this is the beauty. After that, March 12th is Georgia. The Achilles heel of Donald Trump is and Georgia is a totally open primary. So imagine this scenario where Nikki Haley actually beats Trump in Georgia on March 12th. Then that's the beginning of the end for Trump. That's the path. It does seem to require quite a leap at this moment in time to get there. But it 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 would be exciting and it would be a great <laughs> gift to the country. It seems to be one of the possible prerequisites to that to that fantasy politics run there <laughs> is Haley coming second out of Iowa. Sort of like Gary Hart in 84 with the second place leading him to win New Hampshire. There's a lot of similar points in history or something like that has happened. Is there anything that you guys have contemplated doing in Iowa? And obviously you have limited resources, but is, is the Iowa caucus something that a strategy like this could sort of happen on its own. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we, I agree with you that it's, it's kind of a fantasy, but it's a plausible things happen. Yeah. It's a plausible fantasy and it's her only path really. We looked, yeah, with our limited resources and there were, it was an easy choice. Somebody has to damage Trump in either Iowa or New Hampshire. And New Hampshire was the obvious choice, just given the difficulty of caucusing in Iowa and the high evangelical turnout. Look, it would be better for Nikki Haley if she comes in second. Like Trump's going to probably win by 20, 30, maybe even 40 points in, in Iowa. And so the only reason why I like getting second in Iowa is it gives her a little bit of a like media bump. If DeSantis comes in third, he immediately drops out. That's ultimately helpful to Nikki Haley. But what I would Possib- say- Possibly, yeah. Not 100% sure about that, but- Well, basically at this point, People who are still holding on to Ron DeSantis, you know, they've got a resistance to Trump. So the polls are showing it's about 50-50 of them breaking to Trump or breaking to Haley. So it's, it's a wash in terms of like her actual poll numbers. But what I would also say, I, I am a skeptic of Iowa mattering that much because often New Hampshire does the opposite of Iowa. And most importantly... Ron DeSantis in the latest two high quality polls in New Hampshire had 6% and the poll that came out today, he has 5%. So Ron DeSantis is, he's done. Like he's, he's dead. He has no path, no matter what happens in Iowa. It's just a matter of him realizing that. I mean, he's basically become a non-factor in New Hampshire and people see his campaign and kind of feel sorry for it at this point. So. Nikki Haley is going to do extremely well in New Hampshire. And by January 24th, I say the day after the New Hampshire primary, DeSantis is going to be out. Christie will almost definitely be out as well. So it's going to be a one-on-one race going into um, South Carolina and then Super Tuesday. I don't have the same boldness as to pundit with that much assuredness, but it's good to hear. I wanted to, to go back a little bit and ask you some questions about how you got here that I've neglected so far. I feel like you haven't mentioned what your day job was. And I don't know if that's on purpose. Do you work for the government? Do you work for a a foreign policy group? Where have you been for the 20 years that you said you're working in, in foreign policy? I will say I have served my country in uh, China, I have served my country in Peru at great sacrifice to my family and my friends and my wife's career and all of that stuff. I will just say separately from what I just said that there's actually this thing for people that do work in the government called the Hatch Act. And anyone who is bound by the Hatch Act is not allowed to mention where they work They're not allowed to say that they work for the U.S. government. They're not allowed to fundraise. They're not allowed to use U.S. government resources or time uh, to work on this. And so anyone... If you're on leave? So if you are on leave without pay, you are still not allowed to fundraise. You are still not allowed to say where you work. And, And the reason 
but obviously you're not going to be using government time if you're on leave without pay. But yes, you are still bound by the Hatch Act. For people that fall under that scenario, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, but but it's a good law in part. I mean, the, the, the reason for it is they don't want people going up like to a voter in Iowa or New Hampshire and saying, I work for the U.S. government and I'm asking you to vote for Donald Trump or Nikki Haley or whatever. Like, that's the whole point of it. What I am doing has nothing to do with that day job. It was just an inspiration, but I'm not tied to that day job in any way right now, other than eventually I will go back to it. Well, you did mention that the work in Venezuela and Nicaragua was some part of your inspiration for being concerned about our democracy. Can you, for people who haven't followed those two countries, can you sort of lay out what you saw happen there and why that's no good for a country to fall into authoritarianism? Yeah, so I think Venezuela was one of the richest, longest standing democracies in Latin America, and they viewed themselves as kind of exceptional in the sense that they had a long-standing democracy when a lot of their fellow Latin American countries had gone through dictatorships. In the late 90s, a charismatic paratrooper named Hugo Chavez won in Venezuela through a totally free and fair election. He had previously tried to launch a coup and was imprisoned, and then he yeah, he won and he was extremely popular and he eroded the democratic freedoms in Venezuela. He started to tilt the playing field. He still won additional elections because he was so popular. And when he died, I think around 2011, 2012, turned over power to a fellow authoritarian, Nicolas Maduro. And all the institutions of state became captured by the regime, this corrupt narco regime in Venezuela. And my lesson in working on that regime is that you can sanction them all you want. You can, that's the story of Cuba as well. You can restrict visas. You can do all these things. Once the democracy is lost, it is incredibly difficult to retrieve it again, to recover it again. Nicaragua is an even closer parallel to the United States because Daniel Ortega lost, like Donald Trump, he lost in a free and fair election in, I believe, 1989, 1990. He tried to come back into power. He lost a couple elections. In 2006, Daniel Ortega won in a free and fair election again. So like Donald Trump, he ran in a free and fair election. And since 2006, He's gained the support of the national police. The legislature is entirely Sandinista. It's entirely his party. He has made the justice system a totally pro-Ortega regime. And I was working on Nicaragua when he arrested all nine of his presidential opponents so that he would be able to win. And when he dies, you know who he's going to give power to? His wife. And then his wife's going to give power to his son. So he has installed a family dictatorship in Nicaragua. For me, it was really hard because Daniel Ortega and Donald Trump are actually very similar. They want 
what's best for themselves and their family, and they're willing to destroy their countries to be able to achieve that. It's unfortunately not just those countries. It's happened in lots of places in the world. And honestly, it puts my hair on end to hear you talk about it, certainly in such an impassioned way. It must have felt very personal to you. Yeah. I mean, I I wish... This is why it's like I... I spend every day, like, I can't tell people, like, they don't, like you say, they don't know Venezuela, they don't know Nicaragua, they don't know that this is real. They think about, like, oh, the institutions of state will hold up, or, oh, we're exceptional, or, oh, I have to watch, like, I'm glad Michigan won, but it's like, oh, I have to watch that football game or take my, go to the grocery store or whatever, but it's like, we are literally, like, on the brink of losing our democracy and people are just kind of like going about their daily lives. So for me, it's like, I wish I could convey that sense of like, it's possible here and it's not only possible, you know, there's like a 50% chance at this point. And so I'm trying to find ways to show people what's at stake. And that's why I quit my job for a year and I'm trying to do things that are very risky just to show like this really matters a lot. And and the other thing I'll just say is like, I hate the comparisons to Adolf Hitler because Trump is not going to launch a genocide. Trump's not going to kill 6 million people. Trump's not going to launch World War III and try to take over the world. He's not Adolf Hitler. I think that's irresponsible. But I will just say I'm a Jewish American and I was obsessed with the Holocaust growing up and I wondered how people could go along with it, like how Nazi Germany could have. And so when I look at something like this and what's happening in our country, we have a moral obligation to try to not just go along and not just be one of those followers when an autocrat comes to power and I have to do everything that I can in my power. And even if I fail, I want the history books or my at least my children to know that I fought for it. And if I fail, they'll at least know, you know, why, why I failed and why I cared. Is it shocking to you how few people are feeling that way? I've been interviewing since 2017 people who are in the fight, people who feel as strongly as you about it. But it is a small proportion of the country that's quite as worried and quite as on this. Does that surprise you? I try to focus on the good that people bring to this because most people, they are aware that Trump is a unique threat to our democracy half the country is planning to vote against him and they view that as a civic duty for them you can't get everyone to 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 drop their jobs and move to new hampshire like people are not going to be as enthusiastic and a lot of people i talk to they're like well i want joe biden to be the president i want a democrat to be the president because he cares about our democracy and the best way to get joe biden and they're right like the best way for joe biden to continue to be president is for Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. A lot of people in Biden world and uh, and throughout our country are like, why would we help somebody who's beating Joe Biden by 17 percentage points in the polls? And that's a strategic argument in and of itself. 
I wanted Trump to be the nominee in 2016 because I thought Hillary Clinton would beat him. And look what happened. What I tell those people, and most people, they don't agree with me anyway, is <laughs> the stakes are just too damn high. I don't agree with Haley on hardly anything, but I would take her as president over a 50-50 chance of Trump. That's exactly right. It's Do you want a 100% chance of keeping our democracy if it's Haley versus Biden? Or do you want a 50% coin toss chance that we're going to have an autocracy when we wake up in, in November of 2024? Let me just question you on this autocracy thing, because I think I'm fully sharing the same worries and I see that same pattern around the world. And I and and what is coming out of Trump's mouth? He's not hiding it. He's saying very clearly what he wants. Everybody who knows something about the authoritarian playbook sees it in him. Clearly, Venezuela and Nicaragua don't have the duration of institutions that we have. The democratic roots in this country go back before the Declaration of Independence with town hall meetings. And to a very great degree, it's still in our blood, even though if you look at polls right now, some people are questioning the, the system. But what makes you so sure that he can push his way through the legal system, push his way through Congress and actually successfully erode the systems over one more term or more if he's able to seize them? When Ron DeSantis was more popular, a lot of people conflate like, oh, Ron DeSantis is also an autocrat because look what he's done in Florida. The fundamental bedrock of keeping our democracy is free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power. You can't have a democracy if you don't have that. And every other candidate, well, Vivek notwithstanding, has recognized the results of the 2020 election and did not literally launch... <laughs> an insurrection or stand by while there was an insurrection with the explicit goal of undermining the peaceful transfer of power. You cannot have a more clear example of somebody who was trying to stop a, a, a peaceful transfer of power. Even if Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie was like, oh, it would be cool to deny the elections or whatever, they don't have the history of actually being president when a coup took place, an attempted coup. So the, the argument from the other side is, well, our institutions held. It was unsuccessful. What I say is, yes, they did hold, but they held by a thread, right? They held by a thread because we got lucky that those electors in Michigan, despite pressure from Trump, at the time they needed to, they turned in the electors the right way. Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, a Republican, did the right thing. Across all of these states, across all of the court battles, you had Republicans who did the honorable thing for their country. Time and time again, it was Republicans. Mike Pence, Dan Quayle. You right. Know, all, yep. Right. And so, so Mike and Mike Pence, yes, did the heroic thing. But if you read, I highly recommend Jamie Raskin's unthinkable book. We were a lot closer. And even Mike Pence, like he hadn't made up his mind. 
until the day. And he was receiving, he could have easily said, let's give it a couple more days for the states to study. And then it would have gone to the legislature and the legislator would would have installed Donald Trump as our president. And so what I would say is Trump is proud of January 6th. He's proud of being an election denier. He values loyalty over everything else. And so he is going to have four years to put people in Michigan, to put people in Georgia, to put people in Arizona, to put courts that will favor him. That's the playbook. And he's going to have four years to do that. And let's see who he picks as vice president, but don't be surprised if it's you know, somebody like Elise Stefanik or Carrie Lake or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, he values loyalty over anything else. And so if he has four years to do this, like he ta- he jokes about being a dictator on day one. He's a dictator. Like that's in his DNA. If you freely elect a dictator to become the president of the United States, he will be a dictator for four years. And then we will not have a free and fair election in 2028. I'm going to give you another softball question to take a swing like that at, which is what is so wrong with a family dictatorship governing <laughs> your country? For an average person, why should they care? You know, that's actually a, a tougher question than it might seem because in most dictatorships, most people are unaffected in a lot of ways. What I would emphasize is like you said, it's in kind of the DNA of our country that we love freedom. Like New Hampshire, the whole slogan is live free or die. Well, you may be economically free in some ways if we have an autocrat, but your political freedoms are going to start to be curtailed. And if you speak out against the government, Let's say you're a conservative Republican and Trump increases tariffs and you speak out against that because you support free trade. Well, Trump, in in a state where he has installed people who are only loyal to him, uh, you may not get that promotion. The court that you, you know, sue people with may not be as friendly to your interests. But the most important thing for for me is looking at like my children and your children and passing on a democracy so that, and this is where it really matters, is let's say you love Gretchen Whitmer or let's say you love Nikki Haley or let's say you love some governor, Bashir. Let's say you, if you want them to be president in 2028, you want to vote again in 2028. Well, I'm sorry because Trump has won that election. If you vote for him in 2024, he will win no matter what because that man is incapable of understanding that he has lost and he will put all the institutions of state against a free and fair election in 2028. And so I'm sorry, but even a, even Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, if you like them, nope. If, if It's going to be whoever Trump selects. That's how family dictatorships work. Donald J. Trump Jr. or Ivanka Trump or whoever Trump wants to be president next, or maybe he wants to amend the constitution so that he will be president again. Whatever it is, you don't have a choice anymore. And that's the thing that scares me the most. And that's the thing, if you have children or you want what's best for the future, 
you can't easily recover a democracy once it's lost. One of the challenging things about politics is that there are sometimes unpredictable consequences for a move that you make. So it could be the case that if you didn't get involved in New Hampshire, that Trump would have taken damage there regardless of your strategic idea, but that with you out there, if Haley beats him, he gets to yell, this was a bunch of liberal Democrats and their scheme to bring their kind of voters into the primary. I was beaten by the Democrats, not within my own party. Have you thought about how he can play what you're doing? Yeah, and that was our biggest concern before we kind of launched our effort and before we went public with it. And at the time, Trump was winning by, you know, 30, 35 points in New Hampshire. And so we made the calculation that we were kind of in a Hail Mary zone. And so if Trump wins by 45 instead of 40, then who cares? But we had to get as many people as possible. And so we had to be as public as possible so that our numbers would be as high as possible. In small part due to our efforts, but more due to Nikki Haley's performance in the debates and just the way the race has shaped out. She's a conservative Republican that we don't agree with on much. And she's doing okay. Unlike Chris Christie, she's doing okay among conservative Republicans. But she is doing extremely well among undeclared voters as well. And so George W. Bush in 2000 accused John McCain of the exact same thing. He, he, John McCain crushed George W. Bush, the inevitable nominee, like Trump, in, in 2000. McCain won registered Republicans, I think, by single digits. But then he crushed Bush among the undeclared voters. And Bush said, hey, these are a bunch of liberal Democrats that voted for John McCain. And then George W. Bush used that to bludgeon John McCain, plus the Whisper campaign and all these other things. And so South Carolina, George W. Bush won, and then George W. Bush was off to the races. The difference in this race is that Nikki Haley, who has very conservative positions, She's more conservative than John McCain on a lot of issues. I just heard yesterday people in New Hampshire saying, well, Nikki Haley is no John McCain, like because she doesn't appeal to the same kind of qualities and answer any question, all this stuff like they were. So first of all, she's different from John McCain. But even if Trump uses that argument of like, I would love to be in the space where Nikki Haley, like, comes closer, beats Trump, and we have to have this conversation, because that's a way better space. But then we just talked about the next place she goes to is South Carolina, where unlike McCain, Nikki Haley, people in South Carolina like her or hate her, they know her, right? They know who she is. They know what she stands for. They may not like her because of those things. But Unlike John McCain, like you're not going to be able to do a whisper campaign and do this, that she's some hyper liberal, whatever. And then in places like Virginia, people will decide for themselves. But we're certainly worried about the backlash. I'm not going to lie about that. But we made a strategic gamble that the number of voters that we would pull into the race would be greater than the amount of people that would support Trump as a result of our efforts. And I think that we made the right gamble, at least for New Hampshire. There's really 
only a couple places where Trump can be stopped. One is stopping him from getting the nomination, the legal things which are happening independently, but could get in his way. Efforts like yours, efforts by other Republicans who are running. If he gets the nomination, then the general election becomes the battlefield, not just the electoral college where it's going to be fought out, but also like, will the Republicans or the Democrats control more House delegations so that if the race got thrown to the House in that very unlikely event, then the House determines the result by by delegation? What are you going to do after, let's say, Trump wins the nomination? Are you going to continue to fight this fight? And where will you pick as a place to do that? Primary pivots, we talked at the beginning about kind of setting up this organization. The great thing about it is it has a very limited and targeted objective, which is to try to stop Trump in the primaries. Like I think any good organization, once the mission is either achieved or we fail in the mission, it's over. So primary pivot, you know. What about you personally? Yeah, so so primary pivot goes away. Me personally, I have to determine the best way, just honestly, to help in that scenario to help Biden beat Trump. And whether that's working on the Biden campaign, wherever they want to send me, or whether that's working, uh, going back to my job and trying to get the administration to to do the right thing. We'll see. But I think it's absolutely essential for people like me to put everything aside and only ask themselves the question, what can I do to save our democracy? And at that point, there will, as you say, there will be only one line of defense, and it will be Joe Biden. There is a nominal primary on the Democratic side in New Hampshire. Dean Phillips is running against him, a congressman, or is he former congressman at this point? <laughs> no, he's a future. He's a future, <laughs> he's a future former. former. <laughs> <laughs> there are some people who might think strategically the best thing to do is to wound Biden, get him out of the race and get another candidate. I mean, there's all kinds of scenarios you can come up with that are plausible that could motivate you in different directions to try to save the democracy. What is your pitch to a New Hampshire independent or undeclared voter right now? Why ought you pivot in the primary and vote for, say, Haley, as opposed to vote for Biden to make him seem stronger or vote against Biden to help get him out like Lyndon Johnson got knocked out? You know, like what is your pitch right now? So from a primary pivot perspective, he 100% voted with with Joe Biden. Um, so what I say is um, Dean Phillips himself, well, let me just start with the very simplest thing. If you're a New Hampshire undeclared voter, you have two choices. You can vote in the Democratic primary to damage Joe Biden or you can vote in the Republican primary to damage Donald Trump. Dean Phillips is trying to sell you that you should vote in the Democratic primary against our president and that that's the best ticket to democracy. What I'm saying is that's actually Dean Phillips 
is actually the people that he convinces, he's doing a grave disservice to our democracy because he is taking away thousands of voters from the Republican primary. So if Donald Trump wins by 3,000 votes over Nikki Haley and Dean Phillips gets 10,000 undeclared votes, Dean Phillips is singularly responsible for Donald Trump winning New Hampshire, which is crazy, but that's the way New Hampshire works. That's the choice for undeclared voters. Now, what I like to point to is that Dean Phillips has 1% nationally. His candidacy is a total fiction. It is run by his ego because he thinks he's on the same level as Nikki Haley or any other competitor. This is the part that is revealing. He tried to get Gretchen Whitmer in this race. He tried to get Pritzker in this race. He tried to get serious people in this race and he failed. And so as an act of desperation, he joined the race himself. But now he thinks that he can be president and he just can't. He's never going to be president. There's no scenario under which Dean Phillips is going to be president. And so if you're a smart New Hampshire voter, do not throw away your vote on Dean Phillips. Very enjoyable to hear your story, why you uh, are trying to get people to vote against Trump in New Hampshire. I hope that it makes a difference and sets Trump down the path to not getting the nomination or damages him for the general. I just wonder, is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I would say a couple of things that I thought about as we were going along. One is just that on that like $20,000 budget from family and friends, the deadline to change party affiliation in New Hampshire is actually October 6th. It was a few months before the election when no one's paying attention. We texted 38,000 Democrats with no money and no reputation, and we got 3,500 Democrats to change to undeclared. That's like over 1% of the primary population. I've worked in politics before, but I've never moved more than like 10 or 15 voters and so this idea, when I like asked the New Hampshire Secretary of State for the statistics, and they're like, with your $2,000 investment, you were able to move or help move 3,500 voters. It was like a pretty cool feeling of like, wow, this is catching on here. And so I think it should be a message to anyone here in this country, whether it's through postcards or through setting up your own organization, there's an opportunity here. You can do something big. You can be a part of something. The other thing I just wanted to say is like, I was extremely frustrated. Like a lot of people, when I initially talked to about this idea, I was trying to find the organization that was already doing it. The Lincoln Project raised $80 million for the last election. And they're the nation's largest anti-Trump organization. Why are they not doing this? Well, you talk to people that know what the Lincoln Project is up to. They've been spending all their time attacking Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis because it's actually in their financial interest for Trump to be the nominee because then a lot of money and donors will give them more money for the general election. Do you think that's really what is motivating them or might they just have a difference of opinion about like what's most likely to result in Biden winning? Whether it's a different strategy, because as I mentioned, 
actually Biden world will also raise a lot more money if Trump is the nominee. So the there's a combination of a strategic play that it's better for Trump to be the nominee and a financial play where those organizations are going to make a lot more money if Trump is the nominee. It's not for me to determine which is the main motivating factor for them, but I think America should know that the Lincoln Project has been attacking Trump's rivals and making it more likely that Trump will be the nominee, not less likely, whatever their motivations are. So I learned that with organization after organization after organization. And it was so like my friends and family, they're like, oh, cool idea. But why the hell are you the one getting involved in this? And it was because there was no other organization doing it. I mean, it's kind of surprising that nowhere in the New Hampshire progressive ecosystem, from what you're telling me, is anybody else sending out that kind of message. Is that true? I mean, there's a lot of great New Hampshire organizations that are doing a lot of pro-democracy work. And we talked about a whisper campaign. It's like those 3,500 Democrats, like I hear people talking in the grocery store and outside of how they're going to like, oh, I, I'm a, I always vote Democrat, but this year I'm going to vote against Trump in the Republican primary. And I, I just walk past them as they're talking to somebody about it. And I smile because it's like, hey, it's filtering and people know what the right thing to do is here. But a lot of organizations are either red or blue organizations. And so you can't have a red organization do this and you can't have a blue organization do this. So it's kind of an outside the box strategy. So how could people help you that thought this is a good idea? Could they send you money? How else might someone get involved alongside your effort? Yeah. So like there were um, groups of women in Cincinnati, St. Louis, and Boulder, Colorado, they each sent 800 postcards to women in New Hampshire. I love that example because it's a concrete way to show people in New Hampshire that people outside the state care. There's going to be a rides to the polls operation in New Hampshire that we hope to replicate in other states so you can become a driver in your state. Certainly, you can go to our websites, www.primarypivot.org and www.primary-power.org, and you can find ways to, you know, yeah, to if people want to provide resources, financial or otherwise, we have done phone banking efforts in the past. What I would say is the most important, easiest thing that you can do is you can go on to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is and basically just say, I plan to vote in the Republican primary in my state against Trump. And I ask my friends and family to do it as well. Just go on to your social media platforms and your non-social media platforms at your dinner table. I have a circle of my friends and family. This only works if your circle of friends and family do this and they tell their circle of friends and family. So help me, help me by spreading this among your networks. Excellent. Good to hear from you. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much. That was Robert. He is at primarypivot.org. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.